Turn your Bibles tonight to the third chapter of the book of Amos. Chapter 2, we saw Moab, Israel, the southern kingdom, Judah, uh, this group of people. Now we get specifically to the northern kingdom of Israel, and this is a, a very specific, a very poetic, and a very, very, very harsh judgment that's being passed along to the group of the Jewish people in the north, the ten tribes in the north, Israel. And it has tremendous bearing on our history and what we know about our world. And so tonight you're going to get to see some slides from the British National Museum and from the New York Museum of uh, New York Metropolitan Museum. That just this particular era of time is probably the single most well-documented period of time uh, in ancient history, more so even than the Egyptians, because the Assyrians were very prolific writers. Uh, They took great care to mark their conquests, and they left those uh, wonderful works behind for us to see. And so we actually get several of the kings uh, that are going to be involved in this invasion that's going to come Uh, We have their own words about what happened. And so we know very specifically that what Amos saw in this vision from the Lord and the prophecy he gave to Israel actually came true. And it was spot on. And so remember that the time of the writing of this particular book, likely somewhere around 800 B.C., maybe maybe the mid-7s, there is some discrepancy that could be argued over. But what we do know uh, is when the Assyrians came. We know that for sure. And so between 100 and about 55 years later, um, the lion would come. And so tonight, God absolutely an equal opportunity confronter of sin. And he's not going to let his own people slide on it. And the lesson for us in this as we uh, begin here in chapter 3 is that When God says something, he means it. And when he means it, he means it for everybody. And so if he says it, and he means it, and he means it for everybody, it applies to us. And so the lessons, though they were specific to Israel at the time, the point that was being made was, you you can't disrespect God. You you can't pick and choose what you choose to believe. You don't get the opportunity when God says that by His grace, I want to bring you into my kingdom. You do not then get the opportunity to live the way you want to live, especially when that way is contrary to what He's told you you should be. And if you do, you put yourself in harm's way. And it is that message that I think our world is lacking today. I think it's part of the problem that we face as the church, the evangelical, Bible-believing, Christ-honoring, Christ-teaching church in the world, is that when we stray away from what God has said, and what we know God has said, He said through His Word. Amen? So what He says by His Word, that's the final authority. It is the way we're supposed to live our lives. It's never, ever gone well for anybody 
when God reaches out and says, look, you're my kids, I love you. I want you to come. It's never worked out for anybody to then turn around and go, eh, don't really care. going to live my life my own way. And so, tremendous lesson here in chapter 3 for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you care enough to instruct us through it. Lord, that you gave these words to Amos the prophet, and as he spoke them to the northern kingdom Israel, as we push forward uh, these 27, 2800 years now, as we come to our day and time, the words that he spoke are just as true today as they were then. Applied in a little different way. But Lord, uh, we ask that you would use these words to instruct us and correct us. Bring your righteousness into our lives as your word says there in Second Timothy chapter 3. Lord, that they, these words are suited for that. They're well purposed for that. And that through the word we are well equipped for what lies ahead as your people. God, we love you. We bless you. This is your time. Please use it as you see fit. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 1 here in Amos 3. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you. Family of God, you do not ever want to have anyone say that to you and mean it. Those are words you don't want to hear. Let me tell you how to escape that 100% of the time. Do what God says. If you don't want to hear those words, because God may bring a friend to tell you, thus says the Lord. God may bring his word to you and say, thus says the Lord. He, he will instruct us because he loves us. But what you don't want to hear, because the only way you hear these words is he has instructed you and you've chosen not to do it. That's why you hear these particular words. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, and we're going to see why. O children of Israel, against the whole family, now notice why he says it. How big of an instruction do you think it was to the Jewish people when they got to the other side of the Red Sea and saw the Egyptian army drowned? How loudly do you think God spoke to them in those events? How loudly do you think he spoke through the ten plagues that were foisted upon the Egyptian people under Pharaoh? When the angel of death passed through the camp, do you not hear the voice of God shouting, Look, these are my people. Don't mistreat them. I mean what I say. I am going to do what I tell you I will do. God was speaking. He was even speaking to the Egyptians. And so the Lord is speaking to them. He says, against the whole family which I brought up out of the land of Egypt. Now remember, he's already spoken to Judah. And now he's going to speak to Israel, the north. So he's taking care of all the kids. They're all basically getting the same message. Look, you're my people. I delivered you. Notice what he says in verse 2. And this is both sad and at the same time poignantly encouraging. Because this means that God loves us when he tells us Hey, you're going the wrong direction. God loves us exactly as the book of Hebrews says. He chastens those whom he loves. He corrects people when they're going the wrong way. He doesn't just arbitrarily go, well, you know, I'm going to let them go for a while, and then I'll just spank them because I like spanking. He loves us enough to tell us in advance, and he corrects us when we go the wrong direction. You only, notice that word only, 
It means exclusively. It means without other. It, it carries the connotation of exclusivity. That of all the peoples of the earth at that time, I have only known you of all of the families of the earth, is the way to translate it. You're my family, and I delivered you. That's you too under grace, isn't it? Are you not as adopted kids? Have you not been brought near by the blood of the Lamb? Are you not a son and a daughter of God? Have you not been purchased with the very blood of Christ? Are you not his children? Okay, so hear the other side of this, this word. Because though it was spoken to Israel, and it was meant very specifically towards them at that time, it also applies to us in a future sense. Because we're his family. We have known him, he has known us, and he is our God as well. Different method. Because I've known only you. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Anybody in here want to ever hear those words from God? Not me. Because I'm figuring if God's grace is as big as it is, I'm thinking His hand is just as big. I'm thinking if under the love of His grace and His mercy and His care and His tenderness, He blesses us the way He does, I'm pretty sure that when He's delivered us from that sin, if we turn around and go back to what He told us not to do, I can guarantee you that God means business. I know He does. And unfortunately for me, I've lived my life long enough to tell you that He means business. He absolutely will take out the switch. Now, I think every family, if you're, if you're my age, maybe, say you're in your mid-40s, mid-50s, mid-60s, we kind of all grew up in the, roughly the same era of corporal punishment. And it was at that day and time that when you got the message, wait till your father gets home, your knees immediately began to grow weak. Your bowels loosened, as it says in Scripture. Okay, you're like, I'm gonna think I have to go to the bathroom right now because I don't feel real well. And all of a sudden, you just have this, you have this knowledge that you are going to come as close to death as a human possibly can and yet still survive. You are going to be punished because these are the laws of the home. This is the way you're supposed to act. You didn't do it. And now comes the punishment. And there was no one to blame but you. You knew it was coming. Punished for your iniquities. That's pretty much the picture here. Look, I told you the house rules. I told you these are the things that you cannot do and this is how you should live and what you will do when you're in my home. I've given you this understanding. And in the Jewish people's case, he was the only one with whom on this earth 
He had struck a covenant. He said, you're my people. I will be your God. I will bless those who bless me. He's given them all the promises of the land. He's done everything. He's rescued them time and time and time again. He's given them more than they could ever want. And yet, here at this period of time, they've chosen to say, eh, so what? Don't really care. Matter of fact, I'm going to show you I don't care by the way I live my life. Now, I can tell you what would have happened in the 60s if you did that in most homes. You would not walk for weeks. You would be unable to sit. You would need to stand in the back of the classroom. Because part of your anatomy would be red. Because what dad said, dad did. Father God's like that. He means business. He does not want to inflict pain on anyone. But if he finds that his kids are going the wrong way, the belt comes out. The switch comes out. In my case, the belt, the switch, and virtually anything else in the house available for a whacking came out. The rod of correction went to the seat of knowledge. And therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. And he says in verse 3, a verse you should all know, how can two walk together unless they be agreed. And the picture here is a little different than we understand walking. It is actually a term that means yoked together. How can two be yoked together unless they be completely in agreement? How can they travel life's road unless there is a covenant Agreement between them and each keeps his part of the covenant. You see, at that time when a covenant was made, there was part A and there was part B. And the two parts of the covenant were kept together in one place. Typically, they were actually nailed to the door of your home. And so if you made a covenant with something, it would say something to the effect that if I do this, then this person will do that. And as long as those two pieces, it was called a conditional covenant. God made a conditional covenant with Israel. He would be their God, and they would be obedient to the things that he said. That covenant was put together, and to be in agreement, it was nailed to the doorpost of the home, and then... Anytime someone came in, that's right, we have a covenant agreement, and I abide by my part, you keep your part. Matter of fact, the true definition of marriage actually comes from that same picture. There is a covenant between two parties. It's bound. It cannot be broken. And so in this case, if you turn in a mo- just for a moment to 2 Corinthians, to the 6th chapter, here's the New Testament version of this very passage. And it goes from the negative perspective, picking up in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Why? Because you can't walk together the same direction. 
you will not have a covenant relationship. That's why when I see young people, Christian girls dating non-Christian guys, or Christian guys dating non-Christian girls, or worse yet, contemplating marrying said same, it is a disaster in the making. Because either the Christian will be forced to walk in compromise, or ultimately they will be drugged down by the non-believer. Because they are not on the same page. They're serving two different gods, and they cannot walk together because they are not agreed. And so it says, For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion, what intimate fellowship, communion, has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Belial or the devil? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And notice verse 16, and what agreement, there it is. What covenant, what document could you draft that places the temple of God with idols? Do you get the picture? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said. And then the next Two and a half verses, quote from five different Old Testament passages, having to do with God's sovereign claim on the nation Israel as it transfers into our lives in grace. Notice what it says. And I will dwell with them and walk among them and be their God, and they shall be my people. And therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch that which is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and my daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Do you get the picture? What God said through Amos, he repeated through the Apostle Paul. We're supposed to walk with God. And nobody is supposed to break that relationship. Now, is there grace for the stumbles? Yes, of course. Does God's love often overcome even our direct disobedience? At times, yes. But the picture is this. You can't go God's direction while you're not in sync with God. You, you, you cannot have a close personal relationship with the Lord and at the same time be yoked to the world. You can't do it, and you won't do it. I have yet to meet a single person in all of my years of ministry. I have yet to meet a single person who walks in victory who's unequally yoked to the world in any way, shape, or form. doesn't mean they don't love Jesus but their lives are miserable, and most of the time they're compromised. So now we bring it back to this time and place that we're looking at some 2,700 years ago. And we begin with the Lord's questions regarding this matter. He's saying, how can we go somewhere? How can we get anywhere? How can we be joined together and be going the same direction when, basically, are you with me or not? Check out what it says. How can two walk together unless they're agreed? We think of two people who meet each other and they, they make some agreement to, to embark on something. For those of you that have been in business, 
you realize when your employees come in, you don't want them having a different agenda than the one that you set out for the day. Amen? Not much gets done when they tell you how to run your business. That's the picture. It doesn't work. There's no profit to be had in that. There's a bunch of disagreement. There's a bunch of things that won't get done, but very little will get done. There has to be a head. And if there's a head, by necessity, that means someone's following. And in our case, as the body of Christ, we are followers. Amen? That's what the word disciple actually means. We're followers. We made a covenant with God. We said, we're going to walk with you. Israel did the same thing. said, you know what? Oh, yeah, we'll walk with you. With no other nation had God signed that agreement. And to prove it, he gave them the temple chosen. In fact, all of the Mosaic law and even the temple sacrifices and ceremonies were so they could meet with God. That was the whole purpose of it. Come meet with me. Blow the trumpet. Sound it. And we'll meet together. On Shabbat, when the shofar was blown, that was for them to come meet with God. And so he says, are you with me or not? And in this case, they were not. They could not walk together. God would no longer walk with them. He says, look, you want to go that way. I will not keep you from going that way, but that's not the way I'm going. That way is danger. That way is death. You can go that way. I will not stop you. I want your love to be real. There's the choice. And God had put up with their bad behavior as long as He was going to put up with their bad behavior. And there comes a point in time when God says, that's it. So I shared with you last week, you do not want to test where the edge of that cliff is. Amen? You don't want to be the idiot with the shoe with the grease on it that's hanging onto the rail in the Grand Canyon. You don't want to be that person. Look, I'd like to hang out over here. I think I can make it. When all the while God said, no, that's not what I have for you. Don't go that way. And now it come time to pay the piper. Some further questions follow. And I want you to notice the four times that the word lion is used here. It's very, very, very telling. Because in this prophetic window, the prophet Amos is telling them who is going to do this punishment. And it's none other than the Assyrian lion that will come. Will a lion roar in the forest when it has no prey? Does a lion roar for no reason? It's an interesting thing about lions. They do not roar for no reason, period. It is confined to two things, food and reproduction, and that's the only reason lions roar. So, guess which one it is when the lion's coming after you? That'd be food. It's the only option left. Will a lion roar in the forest when it has no prey? Will a young lion cry out of its den if he's caught nothing? The answer is no. Wouldn't waste its time. So the point is, if there's a roaring lion, it means to eat you. It's come for the purpose of destruction. It's hunting. 
Will a bird fall into a snare on the earth where there is no trap for it? Yes, he's seemingly silly questions. Will the snare spring up from the earth if it's caught nothing at all? He, what he's saying is, is he says when there's a when there's a trap, when the lion roars, when these things happen, it's because there's been an adverse reaction that's been undertaken. The trap is sprung because there's something in it. The lion roars because he's about to eat something. You get the picture. You see, Amos was drawing from his own experience in the wilds. And I would just give you this little tidbit. And you're going to see it for reals, as we say. It's a very scientific word. The Assyrian winged lion was coming. Notice the two things that are mentioned in this passage. Lions and birds. Lions, birds. Wings, lion. Do those two things make noise? Do they spring traps when nothing's in it? The answer is no. A third thing. Does the watchman blow his shofar for fun? It says, if a trumpet is blown in the city, will not the people be afraid? If there is calamity in the city, will not the Lord have done it? He's speaking the truth. He's saying, look, in that day and time when the trumpet blast blew, it was for exactly two purposes. And so if there's calamity, it's boiled down to one purpose. It was blown on Shabbat and on the high holy holidays to draw the people to worship the Lord. But that wasn't done when calamity was underway. So what he's saying is, there's calamity in the city and the Lord brings it and the shofar is blown, then what's the issue? There's trouble. Big trouble. And he's trying to get him to think. And I'm just old enough, when I, when I was growing up in San Diego County, because it was a Navy town, it's still a Navy town, and, and you can still see the United States Navy everywhere in San Diego, that day and time, not very long after the Second World War, and right after the Korean War, they still had air raid sirens throughout all of San Diego. And every single day at varying times in the afternoon, you would hear the air raid sirens go off. And it didn't matter where you were, you could hear them. That alarm went off, everybody, and, and it's, we're not at war, but we might be, you never know. And so there was this, there was this instantaneous, you'd kind of look up in the sky, it's like, where, where are the planes? Even though they were at that time not announcing a real conflict, no one was mistaken to believe that it didn't mean that there couldn't be one. That's why they sounded them. Same thing was true with the shofar. Except they didn't have any emergency drills. They didn't have any early warning systems. If the shofar was blown, trouble was coming. The watchman didn't blow that shofar for fun. He didn't blow it in vain. It was so sacred an event that it was only done because there was a real storm brewing. 
Amos wasn't speaking idle words. He wasn't just talking for the sake of talking. He wasn't careless with those words. He was being very pointed and very careful. And he was absolutely not guessing. He wasn't drawing inferences. He wasn't kind of, well, trying. You know, like we do with our kids, we kind of scare them a little bit. It's like, you know, if you did that, you could gouge your eye out. You know, we, as parents, we say those kind of things. We're trying to instill in them some fear that probably isn't real, but may be beneficial. In this case, this was the real deal. The lion's coming, and it's hungry. And it's coming because you disobeyed God, continued to disobey God, and now you're going to get punished for it. It's not going to be a good thing. Does the Lord God reveal his plans for no reason? Verse 7, and let's take really uh, all the way down to verse 9. Notice what it says. It says, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless He reveals His secret to His servants, the prophets. In other words, God's faithful to make sure that we know the things that we're supposed to do. That's why to him who knows it's sin, it's sin. Amen? That's what Scripture declares. Someone who doesn't know it's sin, God's not holding somebody accountable to something they don't know. But once he tells us, then it's our responsibility to do what he said. And so he says, a lion has roared. Who will not fear? Look, guys, I'm not messing around. The lion's roaring. He's coming. Who will not fear? For the Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? It's like, look, this is what's going to happen. This is not if, it's when. You realize that your Bible is not if, it's when. Amen? Amen. God's not joking. He's not jiving us. He's not messing with our heads. He's not talking story, as they say in Hawaii. He means what he says, says what he means. He's already said it. It's going to happen. I feel sorry for people who wander around and dismiss the Bible because it was written so long ago. I, I don't know when the rapture is going to happen. I think it's soon, but I know it's going to happen. I don't know when the tribulation is going to ensue. I, I, I pray that everyone's saved before it happens, but I know it's going to happen. God speaks the truth always, and when he speaks through his prophets, he's speaking to warn the people. He's saying, look, this is the way it is. You may not like what I'm saying, but this is what I'm saying. You see, what he's really saying is, proclaim in the palaces at Ashdod and make in the palaces of the land of Egypt, say, assemble on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults in her midst and the oppressed within her. He's saying, look, I'm going to bring your enemies right to your doorstep and I'm going to cause them to watch you get destroyed so that they will have testimony that I mean what I say. One of the things that's often missed in the history of Israel is the things that God allowed to happen to the nation Israel were happened for a purpose. It wasn't just because God's mean. God means business. And if he did not carry out what he said he was going to do, then it makes him a liar and you can't trust him. 
but he did exactly what he said he was going to do, and therefore you can trust him. And furthermore, so that you don't have to take the Bible's word on it, we have secular history's word on the matter. God was not playing games. And so he says, I'm going to summon uh, those from Ashdod. That's one of the Philistine cities. They were a foe. Summon Egypt, a nation to which Israel was at times a friend, but they were never a friend. He says, I'm going to bring them together here at Samaria. Samaria was the capital of Israel at the time, the northern kingdom. It, it lies on the, on the southern boundaries of the plain of Escadrillion. And there they, the people gathered, and there's a small kind of mountaintop where Samaria actually sat. And around it, almost in a 360-degree uh, circle, if you will, is a valley that's about five square miles. And it was at that place that many of the kings that you're going to see tonight actually fought these great battles along with the Assyrian army. The Assyrian army was the lion that was coming. And he says, make no mistake, you're not going to escape. And it's interesting because the Jewish people put their the, the, the Israelites that were in Israel, the northern kingdom at the time, put that capital city on that hilltop because they believed it was impregnable. Who's going to attack it? If you ever get a chance to travel in Europe, you're going to find that most of the fortresses that have survived to this day were on the tops of hilltops. Very often on the tops of rocky crags. I mean, nearly inaccessible except for one route. There are several of them in Austria that I've visited. And a couple of them, as you, as you look at these castles, you're going, man, how did anybody ever attack these things? There was one way in, multiple gates. Each gate had its own defense. It had archers' positions on either side of it, usually towers from which boiling oil, logs, rocks, giant boulders could be dumped down upon people. It was a hopeless endeavor from a human standpoint to attack those fortresses. That was Samaria. Samaria was impregnable. It's interesting because the summer homes, which we're going to get to in a moment, we're down in the valley at Megiddo. That's where Jeroboam reigned from. Beautiful spot. A little oasis directly next to it. Plenty of water. That was where they summered. But when they wanted to get away from it all, and get away from the caravan routes, they went to Samaria and they thought they were safe there. And God is saying, I'm going to call the people from over there between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And I'm going to have them come over here and watch what's going to happen to you. And so as he begins to do these things, he's going to turn this whole area of the world basically into an amphitheater. He says, I bless you, you curse me. You make my name a byword amongst the people. You dishonor me, you ridicule me, you misrepresent me, you misrepresent my word. He was going to be merciless with them in vindicating his own name. And the reason I tell you these things is I think that God still holds the same standard. Someday God is going to be merciless in vindicating his own name. He's not going to put up with the emergent church forever. He's not going to put up with the seeker-friendly church forever. He's not going to allow his name to be slandered, besmirched, and for people to believe that they can sin with impunity and do whatever they want. He's not going to put up with the, you know, I can be this and a Christian too. I can be that and a Christian too. When he has spoken on an issue, 
That is the body of Christ's official opinion. Amen? That's it. That's what he's saying. He's saying, look, this, I told you what would this covenant would be like, and here's what it's going to be like, and this is your part in it. He says, I've privileged you like no other people on earth. I've given you everything you could have ever wanted. I've delivered you time and time again, and you spit in my face. Not a good place to be. And so he has reason to have a quarrel with Israel. Every bit of moral sense had left them. Notice verse 10. For they do not know to do right. They had gone so far, they had forgotten his law, they had forgotten who he was, what he had said, they no longer even had in their conscience to do what was right. That's a very sad place for any people. It was horrible for Israel, says the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. You know what that says? When politicians become corrupt, watch out. When the palaces are filled with violence and robbery, when they live like Robin Hood, when they steal from the rich to give to the poor, or steal from the poor to give to the rich, when they lie through their teeth, when they are immoral, when they have gone the way of Balaam, watch out. Because it is God who instituted government. You all know that, right? Romans chapter 11. It is God who has instituted all human government. He allows them to be for the benefit of people. And in fact, they do not bear the sword in vain, it says. They actually have that right. But when you lose all moral sense, when we, what we say in our day and time, when the moral compass is broken, the moral compass in America isn't broken, it's been thrown out. It's been tossed away. It's in the trash. Somebody stuck it in a giant rock grinder crusher and it is gone. The moral compass is busted. That was the children of Israel. Their moral compass was gone. Therefore, here's what happens. Thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall be all around the land. Okay? He said what that adversary will be. It's going to be a lion. In fact, it's going to be a lion with wings. Kind of uses both pictures, a bird and a trap and a lion. And your palaces shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as a shepherd takes from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear. That's pretty gruesome. The lion's so busy in destruction that all that's left is parts. So shall the children of Israel be taken out who dwell in Samaria. You guys trusting in your little fortress up there? It is not going to work out very well for you. And just to make sure that you don't miss that it is I who did it, I am going to bring the people from Ashdod and the people from Egypt to witness it when it happens. They will see it. In the corner of a bed, 
on the edge of a couch. You get the picture? They're sitting around in the lap of luxury in their hilltop fortress, absolutely devoid of any moral sense. They do not care what God has to say on any issue. They have said, forget it, God. We're not doing what you want us to do. We're going to do what we want to do. And in fact, we're going to trust our riches and nobody can get to us because we're up here in our ivory palace. We're on the mountaintop. You can't touch us. Do you know why they said that? Because they trusted in their own human abilities. Now, from what I know the Bible says about God, is he the least bit put off by human ability? The answer is no. doesn't matter how big your fortress is. doesn't matter how many times you tell God you don't believe what he said and you think it should be otherwise. It is as he has said. His opinion is the opinion. It's the only opinion. So when he has an opinion and he's spoken on it, that is the opinion. Period. Mankind says, oh, not so much. We don't like what God said on that subject. We think two men should be able to marry each other. We think you should be able to indiscriminately kill all babies that you don't want. Get the picture? Do you understand how close we must be to being in the same place that Israel was. God loved Israel, but he was not about to put up forever with their direct disobedience, with them saying, you know what, we don't care. And in a sense, though it does not apply directly, but in the truth of what's being said, it applies very, very close to directly. We're not Israel. We are not the Jews replaced. We are people of grace. We actually have a worse position because we know the whole of the truth of God. And we've been saved by grace through faith. Not one of you in here has ever had to go to a temple ceremony in Jerusalem. You've not ever had to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to go to the temple on the Day of Atonement once in your life. You were a Jew. You had to do that. You believed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and got saved. Amen? That's why it's so important for the church to not trounce the grace of God. Because if he did this to his own people under a much more difficult situation in a time when they did not have the luxury we have, when there were only a few who had that luxury, look what he did to those who had the luxury. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob. That's all of them. They're all Jacob's kids. Amen? So now he's saying, I don't care whether you're in Judah or whether you're in Israel. Whether you're in the southern kingdom or the northern kingdom. Hear all you children of Jacob, says the Lord God of hosts. And when he uses that name, the Lord God, the God of hosts, when he goes that far, he means business. So as he speaks through Amos, he's saying, look, guys. And this is why it's so critical that we have God's opinion on the things that God has said. So I've shared with you so many times that the, the bane on the church is God has spoken on these social issues and moral issues of our day. He's spoken very clearly on these things. The problem is the church won't speak very clearly as God has spoken. It's a dangerous place to be because it sets us up for destruction. It puts us in God's crosshairs, if you will. God's saying, look, I've given you grace. I've shed my mercy upon you new every morning. 
And what have you done with it? You've spit on my name. You've told people lies about me. You've led them to believe that these things are okay when I said it's not and they'll perish because of it. In that day I punish Israel. Notice he's not speaking of the latter day. He's not saying in that day. He's saying in the day that I punish Israel. It was coming. It was going to be like that. They were going to see it. For their transgressions, I will also visit destruction on the altars of Bethel. He says, look, you guys, you chose the the gods of the Canaanites over me. You've done exactly what they're doing. Your divorce rate is exactly as high as their divorce rate. You're killing as many babies as they're killing. You're going down to the altars of Molech and you're sacrificing your children. You get the picture? He says, look, I'm gonna, I'll make sure that you know this is wrong because I'm going to wipe out their altars at the same time I'm going to wipe you out. Want anything left so that anybody can go back to what you were doing. And the horns of the altar shall be cut off and they'll fall to the ground. The horns of the altar were the place that the priest did one of two things. Either grabbed hold of them and pronounced his blessing upon them or they were the place that the sacrifice was held. And so he's saying, look, you keep going that direction. I'll make sure you understand that God can't support you. I'll drop everything that you're holding on to to the ground. I will destroy the winter house along with the summer house. Now he's getting personal. He said, you see that big mansion down there at Megiddo? If you go there today, at least 24 civilizations stacked one on top of another. Probably as many as 30, 33 is the maximum number I've ever seen. That was the summer house. Rebuilt time and time again, wiped out time and time again. Every time a king would build up his palace on top of it, God said, "Mm mm-mm, gone. Go there today, it's a ruin. The excavations on the top were roughly from the time of Jeroboam II. This time. Within a hundred years. The houses of ivory shall perish. The great houses shall have an end, says the Lord. And so notice these things. What's he really saying to them? What's he, what point is he trying to get across? I think we've made it relatively clear. The lion was coming. The Assyrian lion. A winged lion. That was the symbol of Assyria. They would be there in less than 50 years by the narrowest account and no more than 100 by the longest account. And Assyria would come. You can go visit that today. It's here in our country. Go to New York. Go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And there it is. The winged lion of Sennacherib. What were they doing? He says, as the shepherd takes out of the mouth of lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out that dwell in Samaria. On the corner, he says, you guys that are sitting over there in all of your comfort, doing exactly what I told you not to do, are going to yank your parts out of the mouth of the lion. The mouth of that lion was the lion of Syria. And it would come. Basically, the leftovers would be all that would be left from the nation Israel. When the Assyrian war 
unfolded with with both actually both the north and the south, but it ended uh, with the siege of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was never taken. But Sennacherib made it to the gates of Jerusalem, if you will. By that time, Egypt, Babylonia had already come on the scene. Uh, they were fighting at that point in time. And if you read the account in First King, or in Second Kings, you'll find that if it were not for the angel of the Lord that went out amongst the camp of the Assyrians and slaughtered 185,000 of them, of them in one night, that no one would have been left. There wouldn't have been anybody to take into captivity for the Babylonians. They would have all been gone. God said, I'm not playing. I'm telling you what I'm going to do, and I'm telling you in advance. One of the wonders of the Assyrian people, as they were tremendous chroniclers of their military conquests specifically, the Black Obelisk of Chalamancer III, made in about the ninth century, so slightly before this time, about six and a half feet tall, a little taller than me. Cuneiform text on it reads, A tribute to Jehu, the son of Omri. Both Jehu and Omri were Israelite kings, and both of their names are found in your Bible in First and Second Kings. So on that stone, you have verification of the Israelite kings that the Assyrians came and attacked. Your Bible is true. And it's not true just because the Bible says so or because we're Christians and we're sitting here and Pastor Jeff said so, so it's got to be true. Secular history validates the fact that these kings not only existed, but they did exactly what your Bible said would happen. And so the, the, the wars ensued. Notice that it said there would only be pieces left. The Assyrians were some of the most brutal warriors that have ever walked the face of the earth. And the larger of those two uh, stone panels. And these were all found in the city of Nineveh. You remember Jonah? You remember why he didn't want to go to Nineveh? It was because it was the home city, the capital city of the Assyrians. And they were so vile to the Jewish people, he said, there is no, if I go there, do you remember what he said? They might get saved. I don't want them saved. I want them to die, burn, and go to hell. Why? Because they did stuff like this. When they took captives, they cut off their heads and they traded them like we would trade like Olympic coins. If you ever go to the Olympics or you go to some major event like that, you get little pins or coins, you know, oh, here's from bobsledding. I was up the bottom. Here's the bobsledding coin. They traded heads like that. That's actually what these guys are doing. They're bringing a tribute of Jewish heads. Here, have an extra head. On the smaller panel, those people are being impaled, as I shared with you before. They didn't want anybody to think that they could defeat them, so they took live captives and put them on a pole and made that pole just sharp enough that after the weight of their body stood there for a while, they would eventually die. Sometimes they would stay there for days. The Assyrian lion was coming. Secular history, secular Archaeology says that is exactly what happened, and at exactly that time. The final slide that I have that's a historical slide is of the Taylor Prism. It bears the name and the date. It is dated exactly to 689 B.C. The exact date is given on the prism itself. 
It's a cylinder. And when you look at this cylinder, of course, you don't read cuneiform, and neither do I. But this, again, is a very large piece. And it says directly from Sennacherib, these are his words, that is his cylinder. You can go to the British National Museum and see that one. And it says, and I quote, translated into English, speaking of the Jews, I cut their throats like lambs. I cut off their precious lives as one cuts off a string. Like the many waters of the storm, I made the contents of their gullets and entrails run down on the wide earth. Remember what was said in Amos? There'll only be parts left. This is the king himself writing of his conquest of the Jewish people in 689, less than 100 years after Amos spoke these words. My prancing steeds will be harnessed for my riding, and I will plunge into the streams of their bloods as into a river. The wheels of my war chariot, which brings low the wicked and the evil, were besplattered with blood and filth. Their bodies I will fill with their warriors' bodies in the plain like grass. I will cut off their genitals. I will tear out their privates like cucumber seeds. Why do I share that with you? Your Bible's true. It said it would happen. It happened. The Assyrian lion came. And the Assyrian king said, I did exactly what Amos said would happen. There'd be parts left. That's it. So when God says, hear ye, in verse 13, he says, listen up. He says, look, I'm not messing around. I testify against the house of Jacob. These things are going to happen because you have disrespected me. You've lived in luxury. You've turned your back on me. You've done whatever you want to do. Know this. You brought this on yourself. It's not what I want to do. It's what I'm going to do because you brought it on yourself. When people tell me that they think there was a different God in the Old Testament and some other God in the New Testament, I almost laugh. It's hard for me not to giggle while I'm just cringing. Why do I say that? Because God said of himself, I change not, says the Lord. I don't change, ever. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, if he would do this to his own precious covenant people, the sons of Jacob, from whom ultimately came the Christ, the Messiah, God's only Son. If God would allow those things to happen, and we know for a fact they happened. If you go to the Iraqi National Museum, and you look at the full panels that were discovered in Nineveh, it is the entire story of First and Second Kings. From the Assyrian perspective. And in fact, there is a very famous panel of Jehu, which I gave you a little shot of, actually bowing to the Assyrian kings. They came and they did exactly what God said they would do. That to me tells me a couple of things. It was fulfilled. 
Sin has its sin has its price. Rebellion has its price. Not listening to God has its price. Trouncing the poor has its price. Corrupt government has its price. People living well beyond their means has its price. People not defending the defenseless has its price. People who know the grace of God and don't do it has its price. People who have a right relationship with God and spit upon it, it has a price. And it's not a price that anyone would want to pay. Am I telling you that the Assyrian army is going to be revived and come here to America and wipe them? No, I'm not telling you that at all. But I'm telling you that the body of Christ has an obligation to stand for the Lord. We, we don't have a choice but to say, thus says the Lord. Because you know what? It hasn't cost me personally much of anything to be a Christian. And I don't say that lightly. I say that knowingly because I've traveled some. There are places on this earth where being a Christian will get you killed. Not much of that goes on here in America. We are the most blessed nation on earth. We are the most prosperous nation on earth. We have the best living conditions on the planet. We, we have more than we need. Even the poor among us has more than they really need. And the only reason the ones that don't have it are the ones that have been robbed that God is speaking about here. They could have. We could take care of every poor person in the world with just our excess. If the church fails to proclaim Christ, I don't know how long it is before our Assyrians come. But I know this, you keep going that way, that's what happens, because that's what he did to the Jews. That's what Billy Graham once said, if God doesn't punish America, he will owe Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. And the picture is not just a single issue that is obvious there, but when you've had it so good, and you've lived life so well, and you've lived it by grace through faith, not by the law and stress and struggle and strain and the keeping of all of the commandments and the, just the agony that being a Jew would have been. It would have been tough. Try, trying to imagine yourself trying to stay clean to where you were not ceremonially unclean. That in and of itself would have been a full-time job. We get to pick and choose what day we go to church. We get to walk around completely free to do anything we want, anytime we want, anywhere we want. And we're still going to go to heaven. I think God's looking at the world going, i got some lions left. I hope you don't want them. hope you don't choose that way. Amos saw all that coming. God eventually made it happen. And I pray that the church, us, we, learn a lesson from this. So you know what? I'm going to make sure that people know who God is. Not just the easy things to tell people. 
Because it's easy to tell God about God's grace. Amen? It is. It's easy. You can be saved by grace and through faith. That is easy. What's hard to say is God actually has a plan for your life and it includes you following Him. You see, it's the Lordship issue. Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? And I pray that that Lordship shines through in all of us, especially in us as His church collectively, so that we'll be the witnesses we're supposed to be while we wait for Him to return. Amen? Because that's why you're here. We're supposed to be making disciples. Not just pleasing ourselves. You got a summer house? Praise God. Got a winter house? Praise God. Got nice things? Praise God. And I mean it. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Pray that everybody has each. I pray everybody's got one of each, okay? But if we do, that makes it even easier to tell people about Jesus and who he really is. Let's do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Lord, the challenge of your word. And Lord, admittedly, these are they're hard passages to hear. They're hard passages to teach. But they're truth. They're your word. And Father, it gives us strength when we face these social ills, Lord. When we face the problems of our day. When we recognize that, that you would allow the Assyrians to come to your own precious people. Lord, your covenant people, Israel. If you allowed that to happen to them, Lord, how much more responsibility do we have today as your children of grace? Lord, we thank you for your mercy. Lord, thanks for not giving us what we've earned. We thank you for your grace. Thank you for giving us what we have not earned. Lord, we thank you that your mercy is new every morning and that your grace is sufficient for us to walk in victory. Lord, help us to leave this place and and go out into our own personal little mission field, Lord, wherever that is, with the truth that Jesus is coming soon. And for we who know you, Lord, it's going to be a glorious day. For those who don't, the Assyrian lion is still there. And so, God, we bless you. We praise you. We give you our lives. Lord, use us, please, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.